What's up and welcome to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. He didn't retire, folks. He's here. What's going on, man? This is a really, really tough decision, Pat, to continue to do this podcast. And when everybody booed, it hurt. It hurt. It hurt. There was a report say that somebody might have slashed his tires. I don't think Indianapolis is taking Andrew Luck's retirement. Yeah, Mid- Middle America sports, man. They don't get superstars through free agency. So when you get drafted there, they want you to stay. Yeah, they want you to stay. Andrew Luck was out, but we're still here with you, as Dave said. So if you're listening, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Uh, go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to follow the podcast in any other way you want to listen to it. And also give us that five-star rating and review on iTunes. Yeah. Well, before we jump into some news some uh, music reviews and a, a season of television in review as well today. We want to start off talking about some concerts we went to in New York City. Uh, I, I didn't know you were going to be in Brooklyn this weekend, and uh, I, was, I was a little pissed you didn't, you didn't hit me up, actually. Just Thursday. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw a Beast Coast show uh, Thursday night at Pier 17, which is actually a really awesome venue, outdoor rooftop on the East River. Uh, waterfront and great very experience until it rains i'll get to the rain but yeah no uh we had mentioned when we reviewed the beast coast album that i was interested in that tour and uh they added this uh two new york city shows starting with this thursday night one when their govball set got completely rained out like they were literally on the stage about to start their first song and then like a siren goes off and clears out the festival so they added this as a makeup show to the end of the tour and it was sick. It really was sick. I mean, the mosh pits started at like 6.30 because it was an early start to the show. It was supposed to be 6 to 10. And I was really impressed with the crowd when the best crowds I've ever been in, just tons of energy, tons of people that really knew the songs. And, you know, I think Beast Coast as artists, you know, they're not like mainstream uh, rappers. So does anyone casually show up to one of these shows? Probably not, especially midweek. And you can probably you gauge that and look at the clientele. Is it probably like, 80 20 guys which uh, i expected but no I, I was i was really impressed with the crowd and all the performers to be honest cj fly nick caution they were really great tons of energy and then as i expect from the guys i've seen before underachievers flapper zombies and joey and pro era the rest of pro era they're just like all consummate professionals commanding the stage it's, it's a lot of fun and being that this was a hometown show for them uh they were going to bring out some guests, and the first guest was actually ASAP Ferg, who came out and did Plain Jane, which was fucking awesome. Uh, tons of energy. And then it got uh, rained out because there was lightning, and we lost about an hour and 20 minutes, and there were supposed to be more guests, and we don't know who those guests were, but could have been Chance, could have been because he was in town, uh, Action Bronson, French Montana, ASAP Rocky, who the hell knows. But even though it got cut short early, it was still a fantastic time, man. And Issa Gold of Underachievers the night before was at Tame Impala, where you went. That was at MSG, right? Yeah. Uh, I went to go see Tame Impala at MSG. They played two nights. Uh, I, was, I wasn't I was down on the floor, which is my only regret about the show, because the uh, the light show that goes along with it is very uh, intricate. So if you're on the floor, it almost feels like there's like lights and lasers above you pretty much the whole time. Kind of like you can't even see other parts of, of, the, uh, of the performing uh, center mm-hmm. while it's happening. Um, but Tame Impala for a band that, you know, similar to a band like LCD Sound System, uh, where James Murphy arranges, plays all the instruments, and then records it and uh, drops it on the album, Kevin Parker does the same thing. So mm. I, was, I was a little bit interested to see if that translated, but they sounded almost uh, identical to the album version, which I was really surprised uh, at. And not only that, but when they did riff, uh, especially Kevin Parker, who I wasn't aware he was as good of a guitarist as he was. Um, when they did riff, it really added to the to the the song and the show, especially because I think live Tame Impala's songs can start to feel a little bit samey. You know, they they have a very similar vibe. So I was like, ah, this this could maybe get become a little boring, but it never never lulled never lulled at all. And uh, I went with a couple of people who weren't huge Tame Impala fans going into it, so I was interested to see how they responded. And pretty much everybody left wanting to go to the next night. So uh, it was really great show. Tame Impala 
obviously one of the best rock bands. We're still waiting for that that summer drop. I don't, I don't think we're getting a summer drop from them at this point, hopefully by the end of the year for a new album. But if you can catch someone there in town, I really recommend it. And MSG is a great venue. Um, we had not so great seats, but still saw everything. Uh, acoustics were great. And the seats there are uh, padded and cushioned. So that yeah. was uh, while we waited, uh, did I did not see the opener, Kevin Negroni? Have you ever heard of this? Heard of this band? Nope, no, I haven't. Uh, Velvet Negroni, actually, but um, uh, they they sounded very what you'd expect with Tame Impala opener. So <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, great show. Both had a a good time in at our NYC shows. What's the next show for you? Uh, I bought ASAP for tickets. There's new Yeti tour. <laughs> Uh, that was in December. Was that like good time? Literally the last place I saw Asap Ferg play. <laughs> the, uh, fourth time I've seen him headline, <laughs> excluding other other instances. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I have on the docket right now. Um, yeah, nothing else. Do you have anything? I have um, Vampire Weekend in oh, two nice. weeks, which I'm very excited for. Back nice. at MSG. So. Sunflower in the morning. Uh, very excited for that. Also, was excited to talk about spider-man today you know we, we just talked about spider-man far from home last year we talked about uh spider-man into the spider-verse and this past week news dropped that marvel and sony were not able to come to an agreement uh for continuing to make these movies together so sony was pulling its rights from marvel which was pretty big news considering spider-man uh, in, in the Marvel Universe had been set up to be a, a key figure for Marvel Phase 4 moving forward. Wanted to ask you, Dave, how are you, how are you feeling about this news? Yeah, so definitely came as a bit of a surprise to most people just given the timing of the drop on the eve of uh, the D23 Expo. And, well, I think it's probably dis- it's certainly disappointing to any hardcore MCU fans, certainly the, the Twitter trends of the day of the announcement speak to that but i kind of have to applaud sony for uh protecting their golden goose you know because we know that that's the most valuable film rights that sony owns right and they'll never sell them they'd be stupid too so they're never going to give them back to, to marvel studios and, and disney now so therefore they have to just kind of keep 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 their their prize and I just kind of am surprised that Disney and uh, you know he, you don't know where the decision making with this is. Uh, Feige, Feige obviously is the consulting producer. He's in his past relationship of now uh, five Spider-Man MCU entries, but I don't know if Feige decided that uh, he certainly probably didn't that Marvel wanted at, at least a twenty-five percent profit split. You know, and it was talked that they, they offered fifty-fifty. You know, Disney would. Finance fifty percent, then get fifty percent of the profits. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but they already have the merchandising rights of Spider-Man, and having Spider-Man in their movies benefits the rest of their MCU movies, right? So they get plenty of plenty out of the Spider-Man brand, and they can, you know. So I don't. I just don't understand why they felt they needed to like be have a hard line with. Well, if you if you, if you don't give us more money, then we can't spare Kevin Feige. And there's some conflicting reports, and there's some finger pointing about who's to blame with the uh, ultimatums, if there were any, you know. But I'm just kind of surprised that Disney just wouldn't just run it back what they had before, mm-hmm. because we know Sony's going to make their Sony universe. Venom Two's on the way. Morbius with Jared Leto comes out next summer. Uh, Sinister Six could come up. Who knows, right? So we know that's happening. So why wouldn't Disney just try and keep keep it going? So I don't know. It's I'm pretty surprised, but I, I wouldn't blame Sony for this because they're just protecting their their IP. <laughs> yeah. If anything, this felt like Disney uh, going for like a, a heat check in a sense and just totally bricking it. You know, they they've acquired so many properties within the last year or two. And it's like they almost were like, ah, this is definitely going to work out for us in some way. And Sony's like, nah. Like, <laughs> and I don't even know what a fair price would be. I mean, Far From Home grossed over a billion dollars. It's the highest grossing Sony movie ever. So it's like, how do they even properly 
value something like that or get value back and they can't, which is why they, they can't move it. Um, and good for them on not. And they've also created a, a Spider-Man film in the past too, in the past now that have received critical acclaim. Right. Um, so it's not like Sony can't make a good Spider-Man movie, but I think everybody who's been invested in the Marvel universe is invested in this Tom Holland, part, uh, Peter Parker and wants to see him back. I, I honestly don't even believe that negotiations are, are dead. Like people have said that this is how it's going right. to end up. I think they'll end up figuring something out. But it, You know, I think an underrepresented part of this that I think a lot of MCU heads are ignoring is that from the Phase 4 announcements that we got at San Diego Comic-Con, we know that there's no plans for a Spider-Man uh, film. And obviously, that's because you know, the deal was up and nothing was dated for, for that reason. But 2020 and 2021 are all filled with MCU movies. And 2022, we just learned at D23 that one of those is, in fact, Black Panther 2, as we expected. We assume the other two are Captain Marvel 2 and Guardians 3. So that leaves three years without a spot for Marvel to slot in a Spider-Man film in their universe. Uh, and that just seems like too long of a wait for Sony, because this is Sony's big, big thing, right? And we know Homecoming and Far From Home, that was a two-year gap, and Holland was popping up and the other stuff too. So it is, despite what we thought coming out of Far From Home and Endgame, that Tom, uh, Peter Parker, he's the, uh, the new face of the MCU, the new Stark, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, we, don't have, we never saw any concrete plans of that because the deal was up. And frankly, I'm actually kind of looking forward to what Sony could do with it just because these two Spider-Man movies, especially Far From Home, have felt more like MCU films than Spider-Man films. And maybe we can kind of get back to the essence of Spider-Man in New York City fighting these lower-level villains. I'm not sure. But uh, you're right, though. I doubt we'll, this is the last news we'll hear. I'm sure <clears throat> something will happen eventually. But in the meantime, uh, definitely not the, not the shake-up uh, that Disney wanted. Just no. The obvious. Definitely not. And Disney actually, uh, like you mentioned already, had D23 going on this weekend. We're, we're not going to talk much about it. I mean, we're going to be reviewing a lot of the things that come out on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I just wanted to see if, if, how you were feeling about most of the Star Wars stuff specifically. You know, we got some more clips for The Rise of Skywalker. We got the first look for uh, The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Um, so, some cool stuff in there. So what, what stood out to you? Mandalorian looks fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd seen brief like behind the scenes teasers and photos before and looks fucking great. Uh, cannot wait. It's a launch title for Disney Plus. And we learned an important tidbit that Disney Plus will be releasing episodes week to week, mm-hmm. unlike Netflix. And that's very exciting because I don't want to have to binge the Mandalorian. <laughs> I want to I wanna get into that grit, that cantina grime and soak <laughs> that shit up week to week. So that's exciting. Uh, and then the Rise of Skywalker, yeah, and we got that. Uh, it officially came out today. What they showed at the expo, and uh, yeah, we didn't see a whole lot. Looks cool. I think obviously the the dark ray stuff is some kind of misdirect, whether it's vision or uh, uh, projection, or some people are getting really headcanny and saying it's a clone from Palpatine or or uh, possession. Who the hell knows? But I, I think it's obviously not exactly what it seems. But For sure. Obviously, uh, hype is hype is at maximum. Just, mm-hmm. just be obvious. Yeah, are you feeling more excited for Rise of Skywalker or Mandalorian at, at this point? Oh wow, that's a good question. Um, huh. Um, yeah, I say Rise of Skywalker still just because that they're really building it up as the culmination of nine movies. Yeah, Skywalker saga comes to an end, and I do believe that it's it, it's going to have a lot of closure and finality with that we'll talk about this when we get closer to the movie but uh that's just seems it seems like they're really focusing on that and i think that'll just be have a lot of great payoff for yeah. uh fans so yeah definitely definitely nine but mandalorian man uh, can't, remember when i was in fucking high school and we there was the star wars live action news and you knew that george lucas had like 100 scripts but it was too expensive to make these shows and i was like oh this will never happen i get the fact that we actually got like the high budget live action Star Wars show that looks great coming soon. It's just exciting time. Yeah. I'm more excited for Rise of Skywalker, just like you said, for that, that culmination. And uh, also for the, 
Um, I, I kind of want to see how they move forward after the last one because there was so much division. They seem to have kind of like wanted to steer back into more of the the JJ type movies, but I also with the Mandalorian, especially with uh, Taika Waititi being uh, named as one of the, the voice cast as playing G eleven. Who uh, is that, I think that's the name of the droid, or is it G eighty eight? IG eighty eight. Yes, yeah, from so, Empire. IG88 is uh, he the, the he's not playing that character the famous bounty hunter robot but he's playing the a droid called IG11 who gets confused for IG88 a lot so I feel like it's going to be a lot of like very funny moments with that and what what a great addition yep uh, I mean and also a Bill Burr is in the Mandalorian I had no idea about that oh yes yeah that. you you don't really see much of him in the trailer except for like the back of his head but hmm. I feel like that'll add a nice element to it so. Yeah. Mandalorian could be like the first like truly funny I feel like Star Wars interesting movie. or uh cool. property. So I mean it's about a rogue. Stuff. So you hope there's some uh some levity in between the murder, right? Absolutely. Why don't we why don't we move on to um Rhapsody though? Yeah. So doc. Rhapsody dropping her third studio album. It's had a lot more projects yeah. um in that time. This album titled Eve, with the concept of every track is named after a a female that she looks up to or or idolizes in some sense and uh i wasn't really aware of this album but you you said why don't we check this one out so i, I gave it a listen and i'm really glad i did i found this to be a really in, enjoyable album in a lot of senses and also maybe my favorite j cole feature mm. so th- th- there's a lot to talk about uh at least favorite j cole feature of the year um and he's had some good ones. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about this Rhapsody? Yeah, so I, w- I was definitely anticipating this just because Layla's Wisdom for 2017 was nominated for Best Rap Album, which was both a nice sign of the Grammys actually showing some growth and recognizing someone who's not that famous in Rhapsody and also just getting it right because that album was really great. And people are, you know, maybe you don't know her solo work, but she was featured on Butterfly, on Complexion. So pe- people know Rhapsody and she's, been in the game a long time she's in her 30s uh, i think i first became aware of her just kind of offhand a lot a long while ago because she had a lucy track with mac miller um and i was like oh who's this and then i realized there was a shit ton of music credit to rapsy i was like oh wow uh, we got some work to do <laughs> and i actually ended up catching up to that in 2017 and then yeah this eve it really hits her first music of any kind since 2017 and yeah i think the concept of uh all these famous uh, black women that she looks up to, I think really works just because Rhapsody has always been a really wholesome uh, lyricist and kind of a deep thinker. And I think that definitely shines through on this album, Eve. And Certainly. what I like about this album too is I think there's, there's loose, you can take loose tracks from the, tra- the list and they're all pretty accessible. You know, I think as we say all the time, there's lyrical conscious rappers that have a hard time separating individual songs from like the whole body of work and you just kind of get lost uh and i don't think that's the case with this one so yeah i was i was definitely a big fan of this and i think uh i mean it's been said a lot a lot but she's without question i think that the most lyrical female rapper uh going right now and just one of the best rappers you know period period as, as it is yeah i could see this getting nominated for another grammy um for best rap album i think not only the the concept, but the way that she delivered on this uh, was really, really well done. And I liked so many of these tracks. Um, like I mentioned, Sojourner with J. Cole. I, I, man, J. Cole, the way he sounds in this just sounds like he's bringing so much more intensity than he usually does to his tracks. And not that J. Cole needs that intensity, but it just brought a whole different side of him into this that I really... Uh, thought came across really well and she in Rhapsody keeps up with J. Cole throughout this mm. um, or, or maybe it's the other way around that J. Cole punches up to Rhapsody I'm not not <laughs> so sure well, what other songs did you like yeah so I think track one Nina stood out to me just because it samples Strange Fruit from Nina yeah. Simone and then the second song Cleo samples In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins and I think when you sample well-trodden ground in songs that are you know, sampled often. I think you kind of have to demonstrate your artistic intent, you know, show your work to justify yeah. it. And in the case of uh, uh, Anita Simone sample, I mean, Kanye kind of 
left his mark with blood on the leaves, of course. So it, it's a it's a risk to, to sample songs like that. But I think she delivers. And then from there, uh, and the beats overall, again, really wholesome production. And she, Rhapsody, is so talented that she really can switch up her flows and the uh, cadence of her raps, I think, pretty routinely. So I, I never really felt any of this got samey. Uh, which, yeah. which was great because it is a long listen. Um, JID or JID on Iman. That was great. Iman overall is a track I really liked as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's very little fat on this. And that's that's exciting stuff. Yeah, the, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm going to pronounce this right, but the, the single Iptahaj, I thought was a really strong one with uh, GZA and D'Angelo. She had some... Jizza. Yeah, Jizza. She had some really strong... Um, uh, features on this, which I mean, Queen Latifah. I, I, when was the last time we saw Queen Latifah on a track? Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought she was she was decent. Like I, it wasn't my favorite song, uh, but still was oh, was fun to hear for sure. So uh, I think Eve is uh, definitely a success, and you should give it a listen. We're gonna put a song or two onto our Nostalgia Best of 2019 playlist on Spotify. Are we gonna be putting any Brockhampton on there? From the new album Ginger. Uh, well, there's one song I really enjoy off Ginger, and then other than that, there's just some songs that I think are, are solid. Uh, but yeah, not not, not my favorite, uh, unfortunately. What did you think of Brockhampton's fifth solo album, Ginger or studio album? Yeah. Solo. Um. Well, so th- it was interesting, right? I, we talked about your Destins last year. I caught up through the the Saturation trilogy to be able to talk about your destinies with some perspective and i wasn't expecting them to be dropping this so quickly afterwards i mean your destinies came out october uh, september yeah so it's september. been 11 months but yeah been a year or almost and uh you, you know the saturation albums are i don't want to say spastic but i feel like like they bring so much more energy in so many different ways and ginger was so felt kind of one note and uh i still think i still think the production on this um are is really impressive and unique and you don't really hear songs that are are made like this um but i i probably left this one feeling like this is my least favorite brockhampton album of the five uh which is kind of disappointing because I felt like after Kevin Abstract's solo project, Arizona Baby, which right. I liked a lot, that this was going to be kind of like a great follow-up, and I felt a little disappointed. Yeah, and the thing is, Kevin, especially in the Saturation Trilogy, really anchors those albums, mm-hmm. his presence, his uh, you know, just kind of like the id of, id of the group. And Ginger, he really stood out for not standing out just kind of being one of the guys and despite being the most talented guy in the group uh that's i think it's kind of a perplexing choice and you know listening to ginger i was like oh this is a little lighter than iridescence i mean iridescence was truly at their darkest uh time obviously with amir leaving the group and the fallout from that yet i think i just like more iridescence songs mm-hmm. you know, that's a darker funkier album um and I think that's kind of the issue is I like Brockhampton when they're, I guess when they're, when they're happier, when they're uh, more energetic and their chemistry shines through more. And this just feels like they kind of all are kind of processing the grief a little bit on their own. And it's kind of just more spread out and disjointed as a result. Uh, but no halo, which is a song they had hyped up leading up to the album. I think it's my favorite song for sure off the project. Mm-hmm. That's just an interesting track because it's almost like a pop song and they don't really have any songs like that to this point. Um, I really like Merlin on that. And I think think St. Percy, they have that really cool sample they use to uh, tease the uh, the album lead up. And I'm not actually sure what that sample is. I haven't even tracked that down yet, but I like that. And the transition from St. Percy into uh, If You Pray Right, which then is following back on the bass line that they introduced in Heaven Belongs to You. That was great sequencing, great mixing. That sounded really great. But those songs, I think, are they're solid songs, but you know, I'm not going to run them back a lot. Um, that's despite the fact that you're interpolating Nina Simone and sampling 
or uh yeah sampling three six mafia you know right <laughs> yeah i actually think the first three tracks no halo sugar and boy bye all are really good and i actually feel like even up through dearly departed which is probably my favorite track off this mostly because of it creates this like ambiance almost with like the way that it has like that like i don't even know what it is like synth or something like that that kind of like is in the background the whole time and then the right. electric guitars kind of create this like mood this is probably the moodiest album i can remember for brockhampton and this is yeah. a boy band who kind of relies on being moody but the, these guys are really in their feels and dearly departed is like the center of that you know where like these guitars i think are supposed to be like symbolizing this deep internal conflict that they're talking about with like feeling like a mirror had really done them wrong and mm-hmm. um i think i forgot what his name was matt something Matt uh, champion yeah matt champion on on that track he's talking about like the loss of his grandparents things like that so it's really about right. a song about grief and then they go into ginger which is even more of like a uh feels uh vibey song for for lack of a better term and then it, from there big boy love me for life and victor roberts just fell totally flat for me and i was already kind of feeling like oh, this is a bit of a tough hang um for brockhampton and uh, yeah I, I don't mind the the Brockhampton songs where they get into their feels. I mean, San uh, San Andreas or uh, we had San Marcos. San Marcos, thank you. Uh, was what my favorite song off your distance. That's a totally right. like sad boy song. But this one just uh, I think it was because it was so one note. The whole album in general felt a bit like a slog. Yeah, I think if any any of the performers jumped out to me, it was just Joba. Um, mm. Again, he doesn't have a ton of uh, spots, but uh, the big boy and love me for life. He just really is really coming to his own in the last two albums as this really frenetic performer. And even when he's giving a, a dark, sad verse, uh, it's just so compelling. I just think because he's really great on the mic. And it's kind of wild to think about because he's barely in the saturation trilogy. He was not really one of the main performers at that time. Um, but he really stood out to me. I think Kevin just really floated in and out, which was just disappointing, obviously, because we were high on his solo project. Um, you know, honestly, and again, you know, I, I think a lot of the music videos are really cool. They're, I, they're certainly creative dudes, a little bounce back. But part of me just wonders if they're just kind of burnt out from this RCA record deal they signed just a year and a half ago because they signed that deal for six albums over three years as it was reported they're already behind that pace that's is truly what they need to deliver on but i i, I just wonder if you know and they actually they said they recorded like a hundred tracks for this and they narrowed it down and i wonder if all hundred were sad <laughs> to be honest yeah. like like what else did you guys have have lay out there that we didn't hear <laughs> well it's interesting i was reading a little bit about this album and uh I think they were kind of fucking with whoever was doing the interview, but they're like, Oh, we really want to make our summer album. We won't want this to be very upbeat. And then this comes out, but there's also <laughs> stories about how a major influence on this album has been Shia LaBeouf holding these yeah. like therapy sessions at their like creative home where they all get together and record. Right. Very interesting stuff. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Joba. One thing I was thinking with a band like, like this, that I would really find interesting would be if, if they brought an outside producer, someone maybe like a Dev Hines, uh, to come in and maybe give a couple touches and flourishes on it. Cause I mean, he makes dead boy music too, but I think he, he brings an element that maybe could, uh, be a little bit more, uh, interesting and maybe invigorate them a little bit. You know, I, I love to throw out those hypothetical, like producer artists, sure. like nation. So that was my, my thought with that. I um, mean, they all love, uh, uh, Pharrell, it'd be cool if they actually could link up with him. That would be a really cool. Uh, I mean, and they have that uh, slow thigh, that UK rapper. He pops up a few times in this, and uh, Ryan Beatty, this, uh, the singer who was on a uh, uh, Queer and uh, Bleach from past tracks, he pops up again. But yeah, they are signed the RCA. They, mm-hmm. they can bring some people in. You know, it doesn't just need to be Ramil and Jabari the whole time. Yeah. Although, the, like you Phoenix said, Ramil and Jabari were still great. Oh, yeah, no, they're awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're super exciting. And um, I know Ramil actually has been branched out a little bit. He remember he popped up on the Kaliukas record last year. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, isn't yeah. that 
kind of the thing though is that they're just kind of getting too big to remain a group this big like their their perspectives are so varied how do you create any cohesion with that and that's a thing too they don't even live together anymore actually now they all come together at that creative house but they, they used to all be living in the same house and working that way um that's probably how they are the crap out saturation so fast because they're all on top of each other yeah um yeah you know it's uh again because may, maybe the group just they need to straighten the arrow again and maybe once they progress past uh the lows they've been at in the past year and year and a half, they can get to that point and just come easier. But right now I think ginger like iridescence is just too kind of singular focus on each member's perspective on the grief. It doesn't always come together. And like I said, with iridescence bareface, uh, he's very hit or miss for me. I think some of those songs, man, he just, uh, he's just kind of wailing. It really yeah. uses me. Um, we're definitely going to add at least one Brockhampton track. Taylor Swift, though. Yeah, we were not excited for the seventh studio album, the first one she owns, Lover, because pretty much every single up to this point we've been yeah. pretty, pretty down on. What and the then, fuck? Yeah, and then I listened to it. I was like, oh, this is actually a really good Taylor Swift album. And I'm really excited to talk about it because I, I think it's very interesting to talk about this album in terms of her strategy and putting it out, but then also to just talk about where this, how this propels Taylor forward or in her career. Uh, you know, reputation, we, we talked about it last year and we were pretty down on it. 2017. But yeah, I mean, years ago. we, uh, we panned that shit because it deserved that. And frankly, you can look at the charts. No one ran back those songs after the initial push. It did not make the impact that you expect from an album that's three times platinum. Mm-hmm. And obviously Taylor Swift is long past the point of needing that. She still sells out international arena tours and she sells actually traditionally sells her albums, no matter how good or bad they are. So she's like Taylor Swift is too big to fail um, in that sense. But reputation is without a doubt the biggest disappointment she's had um, mm-hmm. creatively. And as you said, the singles for Lover, man, me, me, me sucks. Why is that the first track? I mean, the, me is the worst track on Lover, the hour-long album. Yeah, and it's the yeah. lead single. It just doesn't make any sense. And then the second single, You Need to Calm Down, is <laughs> it's right up there. I mean, it's queer baiting accusations, too, taking advantage of Pride Month, another bad look for, t- for Taylor, for sure. And then Lover was the third single, which dropped only a, a week before the album. The Archer, then Lover. Yeah, the, so the Archer, actually, I like. Um, it, and I think in context of the album, it, it, it comes across a lot better. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting that she chose <laughs> those songs. And maybe it's because she felt like those would be the ones that were most poppy and radio friendly. Because I do think, hmm. I, I mean, I think a lot of these songs are, are certainly pop and can be played on the radio. But something like Cornelia Street, which is probably my favorite song from this album <laughs> i don't know if if that fits that like earworm algorithm the same way something like me does just because of the like hoo, 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 like that sort of thing is what gets caught in your head and they just play that over and over but cornelia street is actually like a thoughtful song mm-hmm. that harkens back to the who taylor swift was when she wrote fearless or speak now you know it like right. I, it just feels so much it has so much more depth than the singles in a lot of ways right and if if you wanted something pop and radio friendly uh why not of course why didn't you go with i think he knows yeah that's a that, that, that's a bop <laughs> that song was great and frankly when i first listened to this when the beat first comes in for the first introduction of the chorus i got i get this weird sam hunt body like a back robe production vibe just for a split second i really i'm still trying to place it but that that's what that's what it brought me to mm-hmm. yeah i think i think that that, that song's that song's a banger uh yeah. if you go on with that you go on paper rings i think there's some obvious uh ra- radio friendly songs and yeah and those are not the most lyrical uh choices on this album mm-hmm. but i think there's a better introduction to introduce to radio and i'm sure those are forthcoming singles she, again she's already released four and the album just came out uh but yeah, I, I think you kind of nailed it. Just 
it's a return to form in the songwriting sense for Taylor. So I think that was severely lacking on reputation because she's finally gotten over or at least progressed past the whole feud with Kanye and Kim and then the subsequent public fallout with that. And she's less about victimizing herself and kind of getting back to what Taylor Swift is good for and why she's so famous and popular where she's able to articulate uh, her emotions and her feelings in a compelling way that's really uh, accessible to mass uh, you know, audience, but also really speaks to people. Yeah. And, well, I think she's, there's still misses on here and there's certainly still bloat on this album. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it's like red and red's mm-hmm. just a album with banger after banger, but also has album cuts that people will cry to and sing every word to when she performs them. So yeah, it's a uh, quite the, uh, quite this, you know, the, quite the comeback just because and again, critical comeback not commercial comeback but i mean a few months ago people were talking about you know especially once me came out like is taylor swift done you know old town road yeah. stopped me and you need to come down from getting number one and Billie eilish is the new sound of pop can taylor swift and Katy perry keep up and taylor swift got back to the basics on this mm-hmm. and it worked uh, interesting you brought up red because this feels very much like a continuation or a partner in terms of her albums with red uh especially because she when she dropped the album she wrote a line like i used to think love was red but it's actually like golden like the, the daylight or something like that i think yeah. her, you know kind of mentioning a, a song from her tracks you also mentioned the way that the, like when is taylor swift at her best and in reading uh, a review by Anna Gaka on Pitchfork about it, I thought she made a really, really good point about her songwriting. And that's that Swift seems to be at her most on her A game when she is exploring her feelings and trying to explain them rather than trying to teach us something. You know, like something like me where she's trying to like tell everybody like, hey, like there's only one of you. Like don't let people get you down. That, that that's when we find her very grating. I think that, that was the thing about reputation a lot of the time was it felt like a lot like she was saying, I've been through these things and this is like wh- how you deal with it or what's I like. did something bad. Right. But then but then you look at the, the songs on here that are probably the best. You know, I already mentioned Cornelia Street, a song like uh, Soon You'll Get Better, which even though it's not maybe uh, an upbeat song that will get a ton of radio play is a really moving and an emotive song and you bring in the fucking dixie chicks to sing background for you and yep. it sounds like yeah it's when she is exploring what's going on for her or things that have happened to her i do think swift does a better job tell us a better job of making songs people want to hear and that don't grate on you so much you know it's funny because i think we've mentioned this was 16 18 tracks something like that yep 18 tracks i think we've mentioned like half of them as songs that we've liked in some way yeah. um how did you feel about the opener i think that's a good opener it's a good intro i forgot that you existed again that that just you hear that for the first time and immediately brings you back to again that that textbook taylor where she i think she now she kind of has acknowledged a lot of reviews are pointing this out she's acknowledged perhaps to herself or at least publicly now that confrontation does fuel her lyrical content usually it was relationship and breakup focused then it became public shaming reputation now we're back to before and i mean that's just going to be like an anthem to tons of tons of people men and women (laughs) i think cruel summer right after that Mm -hmm. really like oh wait wow this like here's an earwormy song here's your song with radio potential right away and you just immediately lose that distaste that you might have had from those singles. Um, yeah. The, the the bridge in Cruel Summer leading up to like the crescendo at the end is like that's some of the best Taylor Swift like songwriting and like music construction. And shout out to Jack Antonoff, who was uh, pro- producing a lot of this. And he's all I over th- this. I think he adds a lot. Um, it seems like um, Frank Dukes also uh, was all over this album in production. I wanted to get your your feelings on two more songs. Um, the man, <laughs> how did you feel about Taylor's uh, takedown of misogyny? Yeah, so 
listening to it, I couldn't help but feel like this was like trying to put a bow specifically on the Kanye stuff. Mm -hmm. And in that lens, I think it really fails and it just doesn't hold water. And we don't have to get into that, but it does come across as a bit half-baked. Yeah. Where she's not really exploring anything beyond saying, well, if I was a man, this, this, and this. As if and it just feels like she's trying to absolve herself of all past mistakes because she does, she, and she is right. She wouldn't have been as criticized if she was a man for certain things. But that does not mean she didn't make mistakes. I just feel like she's not, it's like putting your head in the sand for a second. And if you had fine tuned this message, it probably could have actually been like a much more profound song. But I just don't think it gets there. Yeah, the, it, it could have used a little bit more reflection, I think. Um, better song about being a man if I were a boy or the man no comment (laughs) Um, London boy you know this is the probably the most uh, out there song that uh, is identifying the inspiration for this album which seems to be Joe Elwin um, yeah who you know last time we saw him Emma Stone was uh, emotionally dominating him throughout the favorite Um, (laughs) <laughs> he plays dicks in movies he's never he's played a nazi and yeah. uh operation finale uh, he he rapes lucas hedges and boy erased he, he hasn't stood out in a movie yet it's for a good reason yeah how do you feel about london boy uh i do think it's kind of funny um mm-hmm. like the whole she loves the west end the way she loves new york city okay cool uh yeah. watching rugby with the boys um if you say so that's really how it went down. Fine. Um, yeah. I, 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 it's just kind of like a cheery, uh, inoffensive song, mm-hmm. which is, again, if, if that's kind of your, your album fluff, that's fine because it's uh, better than the past fluff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's fine. It's fun. It's, it's poppy. It's just going to be what it's going to be. Um, I, I do like that. That's like the, you know, I saw the ringer talk about this a little bit, how uh, the guys that the albums are about oftentimes will mark the, the Taylor Swift album, so to speak. And I had no idea that Taylor Swift was with Joe Alwyn or that they were dating or whatever. Um, (laughs) Unlike, you know, like Jake Gyllenhaal or John Mayer or Harry Styles. Yeah. Who have been mentioned in these, these other songs. This one feels like the, like the least, like placing like in a couple of years, I'll probably totally forget who it was about. So mm-hmm. not, not too concerned about it. So where, where do you see Swift Ed now? She, she back. Certainly back. Important to notice here. She did not collaborate with Max Martin at all on this. As you said, this was all Jack Antonoff who's been very in vogue. And we've talked about his work before with Lord and other people. Also noteworthy is that Lewis Bell, is all over this. Lewis Bell, one of the newest super producers we have, really caught on once he started working on Post Malone a few years ago. Uh, you know, think he won Producer of the Year from like a Billboard Award or something, whatever it was. But he's actually interesting because he's from Quincy, Mass. He came up making songs for Mike Studd. Then he got introduced <laughs> to Post Malone, and now he's like the most mainstream producer ever, makes hits for everyone. It's kind of a crazy come up. But working with someone like, like Lewis Bell, um, and you know, again, she, I think she did she work with Greg Kirsten on Reputation. I don't remember, but recall she she's using the people that are making stuff that's actually like of the moment, which I think is smart. And Max Martin uh, is certainly still of the moment. I mean, he's all over Thank You Next, for example. But it just seems like Taylor Taylor's got her own head right again, and now she can just take advantage of the commercial force that she still is. You know, do I believe that she genuinely decided to finally bash uh, the politicians she dislikes? No, I think she realized that was actually good for her brain. That's what she did. Uh, I would never say she's not calculated, but when she's doing managing her career the right way, like she is right now, uh, or at least how we expect it to go from this album, I she is she the biggest face in pop. I mean, she in one day she had the biggest. Sales week of the year, being Crazy. the Jonas Brothers, it's gonna go seven seventy five to eight fifty thousand total units first week is the projection. 
of that 650 to 700,000 are pure sales. So she, so in the few people that really, few people in pop music too, that really can motivate her fans, her legion of fans to buy a record, a physical record or an iTunes download, spend that 10 bucks. And as you know, she still saw her, her upcoming tour. So yeah, Taylor Swift's back. And I'm just interested to see if she can keep it going or if she has too much pride and messes up again. Cause again, like the man, the, the man could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So, you know, right now she's in a good spot. Well, she, she's going to test that be, or supposedly is going to test that. Cause she says she's going to re-record all of her past albums. Um, we'll see uh, if she does that. I think that'll be a very interesting move. It'll be interesting to see if she puts new flourishes on any of those songs. So, um, wh- where does this fall for you in terms of Swift albums? Good question. I think I have this two or three, two maybe. Mm-hmm. I think Red is my favorite just because it's the most poppy, and that's why I like like Taylor. For I don't really run back the uh, the deep cuts from Taylor Swift. Shocker. Um, I think 1989, which has my favorite Taylor Swift song, Blank Space. But I think overall has a lot of misses on the album. Mm-hmm. I think Red is probably safer. I think I had this too after Red. Not really big speak now guy. I don't care about fearless or self-titled. So yeah, I think I have this too. Yeah. I think I, when I'm looking here, just, I think I probably have this top three. I don't know the exact order, but it's red. Um, this and yeah, fearless and 1989 can jump in there. I really like a 1989, especially, uh, the singles on it. Um, even something like out of the woods, which I think it's panned. I, I really enjoy. So, eh, you know, it teach their own, but, uh, she has a really strong track uh, depth, you know, in terms yeah. of the singles, it's kind of crazy. So about to, about to turn 30 too. She's, she's just getting started. We'll be talking about her a lot moving forward. Hopefully we'll be talking about a mind hunter moving forward too, because season two just dropped on Netflix and uh, you know, two weeks ago now and mind hunter season two, it, see, it felt a lot like, other very popular shows something like mr robot or the wire um where season two maybe wasn't as strong as season one but it felt like it was laying a lot of groundwork to expand the show moving forward in my opinion hmm. um, how did you feel about mindhunter season two yeah so i've been catching up on the show recently so season one still very fresh in my mind and what obviously stands out, as you kind of alluded to, is that season two is just much more of a crime procedural, touching the back half once we really get into and focus on the Atlanta uh, child murders. And that's kind of the sole focus of holding it tench. And you know, as for the future, I think uh, there's a lot of options now, uh, mm-hmm. whereas season one is a much more atmospheric, moody, cerebral show very much influenced by Fincher and Fincher's influence both stylistically and thematically still present in the season he directs the beginning of the season. But I, I'm actually really curious and I'm not really even sure where to go with it, but where the show chooses to actually go from here, assuming it does get renewed just because they've been teasing the BTK killer through both seasons mm-hmm. cold with really effective cold open scenes for the most part in, in Kansas. And, that's despite the fact that he doesn't get caught for 25 more years. Yeah. So, and this show has mostly been trying to play with the facts, obviously Holden and Tencher composite characters based off this Douglas book, but they're, this is an artistic license, but they've been sticking pretty closely to the, the real, you know, the, the, the serial colors and whatnot. So mm-hmm. are we going to age up and, and, and leave the, leave the period setting? Yeah. Hey, I, I, it seems like that's way down the line still. So I'm not really sure what happens next. There has to be a time jump coming. I, I don't know if it's going to be season three, only because even uh, as this is going on, they're still introducing the idea of serial killers. Right. The idea of these multiple. You're calling it now? Yeah, right. So there's, I think the season three, might you might start to see that becoming more established, more mainstream, this idea. Um uh, but I think what I feel excited for, you talked about all these different directions the show can go, is the first season was 
very focused on Jonathan Groff's uh, uh, Holton Ford, yep. who is a very compelling character throughout the whole first season, seeing the rise and the creation of this unit, you know, especially him teaming up with Holt uh, McCallany's Tench was really, really fun to watch. And they pulled Anna Torv's Wendy car in there and it really started to hit, hit the ground running. You got uh, Kemper uh, and the guy who plays him, who uh, Cameron Britton. Yeah. Uh, just mesmerizing every time he's on screen. Yes, after Emmy nomination. Fantastic. Yeah. He's he's great. So there was all these elements, but it was really like this is Ford's story. This now it feels a little bit more like like the team story. You know, Wendy gets a lot of time in, about her personal life and exploring who she is and, and her uh, identity as a lesbian woman in this time when it's not really accepted to be out. You have tension all of the family drama going on with with his son and his wife Nancy and the they really started to build these characters out and even Greg a little bit in the interrogation scenes, you start to learn a little bit more about him and who he is as a character. And I imagine probably season three will explore that a little bit more. And by that, by just the amount of sheer time that they could give, I mean, the only time you see Holton outside of the job, he's still working, you know, he's being brought in to uh, find out about these Atlanta child murders. And then, push that to the forefront of the FBI's consciousness right. to kind of push his agenda forward. So other than some of the anxiety stuff with him, you don't really get much character growth with him. And I feel like they really want to build up these other characters to try to make the show a little bit more, more uh, well-rounded, I guess. But I think because of that, the show didn't have the highs that the first season had. There was no moment like at the end of the first season, like with uh, you know the Led Zeppelin song drop yeah. and Kemper and uh, Ford having that showdown. But still, the interrogation scenes were really fascinating. Uh, you know, you get the you get the Manson moment, which I thought was really really well done, and it, it kind of I think made you feel what a lot of the the Manson family talked about, feeling like he had this control over you, especially with you know you see the tench totally turned off to the guy before it is totally bought in right at a point and then you also have the interrogation scene where uh, i forgot the name of the killer but where wendy shares the story about her mentor and who's lesbian and kind of throws that guy off and that guy was also really mesmerizing even son of sam was uh, david berkowitz was a really fascinating i think that's where the show excelled the most was when they were actually face to face with these serial killers how they were interacting right did you recognize who plays henley the guy who assisted the Candyman guy. I I, I, him? I know I know I'd seen him. I couldn't place it though. He's the guy who plays uh, young Ned Stark in the flashbacks, <sighs> The Tower of Joy. Yes. No, now it ends. That guy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, actually, I recognized who played Berkowitz despite the makeup because I heard his voice. It's the one of the kids from Project X, the uh, party movie from 2012. Oh, the guy is Costa. I fucking saw it. I looked it up. Wow. I was really proud of myself. <laughs> that That's a really good catch as well. Yeah. You know, I think what well, you hit on a lot there. And as you said, Holden, he's kind of growing obsession with the ethos of, of, of killers and the psychology they're developing his unit and his growing fascination, genuine fascination with it throughout season one is really present. And then obviously you said the mental breakdown happens. Then he breaks up with Debbie. And that was a bit of a thin relationship in season one, but I think it is effective for showing just how Ford kind of devolved and he's so obsessed with his work. And that's why in season one, there isn't anything else going on with Holden because he's just so singular focused. And then when we have, uh, you know, his team struggling with their personal lives. You see the show kind of showing the other side of its coin where the serial killers are fantastic at compartmentalizing the, the evil, mm-hmm. heinous shit they do. And it's people studying them and talking to them that are having trouble with their own personal lives and bringing their work home and stuff like that. And ultimately, that's what's always been so great about the show is it never shows the violence or, uh, you know, any, any, any of the acts. 
despite the fact that it's really good at maintaining the dramatic tension, making you think like something might be coming. But there's no chase. There's no Hannibal Lecter shit, right? Mm-hmm. It's very, very methodical, very grounded because it's, so it's all about psychology. Yeah. And that's really hard to pull off. And I think one of the best scenes, one of the, the Fincher scenes is uh, when they're talking, when Tench and the, the local cop are talking to Kevin, one of the survivors, the survivor from the BTK. And the way they frame that and build that up, and you think something bad's going to happen, but no, it's just a tense conversation the whole time. But they never show you that face and they make you think you're going to see that face. The whole, that whole sequence is masterful. Yeah. And as you said, overall, just the serial killer scenes, when you build up to these interrogations, these conversations, is very, I think, showman-like. And Kemper, of course, stood out so much in season one. That's probably why he came back this mm-hmm. time around. And he really was at the same prison as Manson. But it was just kind of cool to see Cameron Britton again, just because, uh, man, I think the Kemper character is so fascinating both in the show and I think honestly in real life like you, you can read the YouTube comments under like the, the real interviews they have of him on, and it's like everyone's like man what a waste of a 140 IQ this guy is really bright too yeah. bad he's a fucking psychopath who's mm-hmm. you know, paranoid schizophrenic and all that but uh yeah I uh I think the show the show is really great and even I think I think I would agree I think season one's a bit stronger just, I think I think overall the the, the mood is uh, more more uh, effective at like maintaining that atmosphere the show wants you to be in, and also I, I really like the rhythm we had in the early part of season one where tension holders on the road talking to those cops and uh, kind of really learning and developing that psychology. But overall, and the characters, I, I like where all the characters are at at the end of this season, even if. Antorf's kind of sidelined by the finale, um, but yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of potential for the for the future. So I really hope Netflix does in fact renew it because they they, they haven't been a fan of season three renewals as of late, and we know Mindhunter's not the cheapest show. So we, we hope the Fincher influence can keep this going. Uh, I I think this is a show that will definitely get picked up. Uh, Glow, I'm not so sure about, but this one uh, I feel very confident in, uh, mostly because. Um, you do have Fincher behind it, but I don't know. I, I guess I just can't foresee the show not coming back is, is where I'm at with it. Right. And Grok is a rising star, I feel like. Oh, for sure. I'm Part of me wonders if they had to change the scripts because Groff couldn't be on set as much. Yeah. You know, he's, slightly, he's in the show slightly less this time. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, he, he, he's superb. And you, you kind of wonder how far they're going to take uh, the Holden arc you know is he gonna yeah. truly devolve a- a- into some some obsessive guy who loses the plot as he has in spurt so far um mm-hmm. that's probably more likely to me i mean obviously they they tease that uh Tench's kid is a serial killer in the making <laughs> and we're, yeah. we're never we're never we probably won't progress far enough to see that uh, then again if we time jump to btk <laughs> and Tench's kids actually killing people too who knows but yeah <laughs> uh man drops great the whole cast is great. Yeah, it, it's a really, really great show. Um, can't speak highly enough about it. So catch up if uh, if you haven't been tuned into it at all. That does it for uh, our reviews this week. What do we got next week, Dave? Yeah, so next week, uh, Tool and Landa Ray are dropping records. We'll talk about those two weeks from now. But Dave Chappelle has a special out that we'll talk about. Um, that's coming out this week right now if you're listening to this uh try and talk i'm trying to see the peanut butter falcon the shia labeouf movie that everyone loves right now talk about that um some other stuff's come up like boycott mulan and the hunt getting pulled from distribution so we'll we'll pack the show per usual so yeah so stay keep tuned. an eye out um so like i said that does it for us this week Hit us up uh, at NostalgiaPod on Twitter. Go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to find all the ways to listen to the podcast. And lastly, give us a uh, five-star rating or review on iTunes and subscribe on YouTube. We love you. We appreciate you. We'll see you next week. Peace out. Yeah.